After putting this episode to bed, I was informed by Patrick Wickstrom that Pat Hitchcock had died on August 9th at the age of 93. She started out as a young actress on stage, leading to her father casting her in three of his films. She had a major role in Strangers on a Train, in which she is perfectly cast, and minor roles in Stage Fright and Psycho. She continued that willingness to take roles of any size in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. We have already seen her three times in lead roles in Into Thin Air, episode number five, and The Belfry, episode number 33, and in a small role in The Older Sister, episode number 17. Those appearances alone make her worth honoring, but it is, of course, as the daughter of Alfred and Alma that she is best remembered. It was not long ago that we lost Norman Lloyd, an important conduit to Hitchcock's professional past. Now, with Pat, we have lost a unique insight into the Hitchcock's private lives and a faithful caretaker of their memories. I never met or spoke to Pat Hitchcock, but it was always nice to know she was there. We'll see her in seven more episodes, beginning with I Killed the Count, Part 1, Episode 25 of Season 2. But it just won't be the same. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and it seemed to me, after watching this episode, Decoy, that the whole thing was misnamed. After all, our main character, Gil, is a patsy, isn't he? He's not a decoy. But then what is a decoy exactly, anyway? Let's look in the dictionary. Decoy. Noun. A bird or mammal, or an imitation of one, used by hunters to attract other birds or mammals, as in a decoy duck. Okay, that's what I thought decoy meant. What's the second definition? A pond from which narrow netted channels lead, into which wild ducks may be enticed for capture. Now we're getting way off track. But then there's this, decoy verb. Lure or entice a person or animal away from an intended course, typically into a trap, as in they would try to decoy the enemy toward the hidden group. And following off of that, we have this. If you refer to something or someone as a decoy, you mean that they are intended to attract people's attention and deceive them, for example, by leading them into a trap or away from a particular place. Or, in the case of our episode, lead them away from the actual murderer and the person behind the murder. So our main character, Gil, has it exactly right when he says, Someone had followed me and turned me into a patsy, a fall guy, a clay pigeon. I was a decoy. What should I do? We'll find out what Gil does soon enough. And we'll find out who's behind it all, probably figuring it out a lot earlier than is intended. We have three episodes left in the first season. Each of these last three episodes are compelling and suspenseful in their own ways, but they all have one thing in common. They are all entirely predictable. So what do the writers and directors do about that? 
Well, each episode uses different techniques, trying to keep us off balance, trying to keep us from guessing what's really going on. None of it works, particularly, but it's interesting to see what they try. Here, we have the way the person on the phone is presented, and we have two red herrings designed to throw suspicion upon others. But we mainly have an active director that keeps things moving, absorbing our interest, and distracting us from the flaws in the story without us really noticing it. I'll get back to all of that a little bit later. But first, here's Hitch holding a big magnifying glass in front of his face so that his face seems to fill up the entire screen. Good evening. I've been examining the fingerprints on the inside of your television screen. Very unusual. They're all thumbs. That's it. They must have been left by your television repairman. You know, I could use this to watch television. I have a 27-inch set with an 8-inch screen. It also has an adjustment for color. The adjustment consists of a palette and brush, and the viewer simply fills in the numbered squares. It takes a very deft hand. Tonight's tale is provocatively captioned, Decoy. Do I pique you? I hope so. A program host should always be a good peeker. In watching this story, I want you to pay particular attention to the three undraped ladies who dance in the final scene, because one of these young ladies has since married a titled Englishman, and her face is now quite well known. The young lady marrying a titled Englishman seems to be a fictional allusion to Grace Kelly's marriage to Prince Rainier of Monaco, which took place on April 19th, less than two months before the airing of this episode. That marriage taking Hitchcock's favorite leading lady away from him. As for the three undraped dancing ladies, as Hitch will explain in his outro, they do not appear in this episode. Now, there's actually more to this intro, which is lopped off on my DVD. But thanks to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, we know what it is. And now, please listen closely. The next sound you hear will be that of my sponsor dropping a hint. So here's Decoy. First broadcast on June 10th, 1956. Starring Robert Horton and Kara Williams. Teleplay by Bernard C. Schoenfeld. Based on a story by Richard George Pettisini. And directed by Arnold Lavin. Those are all new names for us. Why don't we take a look at a few of them right off the bat? Actually, why don't we learn a little bit about the two main characters before we delve into the actors that are playing them? As was made clear by the Patsy Fall Guy Clay Pigeon clip I already played, we once again have a narrator. He's Gil Larkin, and the episode opens on him playing the piano. As he begins his narration, the camera pulls back to show us the back of Mona Cameron. Six o'clock. I was sorry to see the day come to an end. It had been a wonderful day. 
but everything seemed wonderful when I was with Moon. Even the arrangements I'd made for her new show I felt was the best work I'd ever done. Mona. So near and yet so distant. I guess I fell in love with Mona the first week I began to work for her. She had no idea how I felt and I couldn't let her know. She was married. Married to Ben Cameron, one of the top theatrical agents in New York. There are some nice directing touches here. Mona not only has her back to us, her head is down as she is looking at a musical arrangement. She doesn't see Gil looking up at her off and on admiringly, but we see it. When Gil says, Mona, so near and yet so distant, she actually walks away from him, increasing the distance, and her back is still to us. So when do we see Mona's face? Not until Gil has professed his love for her to us, not to her. Then we get a close-up, but she is still looking down. She doesn't look up and look at Gil until he says to us that she has no idea how he feels. This simultaneous occurrence may mean nothing, or it may be the director letting us know that Mona knows more about how Gil feels for her than he thinks. This little snippet of narration tells us pretty much all we need to know. Mona is a performer, and Gil is her musical arranger and accompanist, and she is married to one of the top theatrical agents in New York. Mona and Gil are working together on her new show, though in Gil's narration it almost sounds like he says her no-show, and she tells him she's tired and wants to knock off for the day, and then asks him for a drink, which is apparently very unusual for Mona. Gil goes to fix her one, but he notices that she is rubbing her left arm while he is away from her. And then when he hands her the drink, she reaches out that arm and the glass slips right through her fingers, falls to the floor. Now, I'm going to spoil the episode entirely, as I always do, but I don't usually spoil it so early. Still, even though we've just met these characters, Mona's actions come across as a little bit fishy. It's hard not to see the arm rubbing as something that is intended to draw Gil's attention. And the request for a drink, which she almost never has, seems intended to create a dramatic moment in which she can drop that drink on the floor. All of which gets Gil to ask the question she wants him to ask. Mona, what's wrong? You've been rubbing your arm all afternoon. Oh, nothing. It's just a little sore, that's all. Same time tomorrow? Mona, what's the matter? <laughs> nothing. Can't a girl get tired after rehearsing all day? Gil seems to accept this, and he starts to leave. He actually leaves the frame of the camera, with Mona turning her back to us again to watch him go. But then the camera changes position, moves to the front door, so that we see Gil facing away from Mona, but facing us, and Mona behind him, also facing us. He picks up his jacket and starts to head for the front door. The camera backs up as he heads towards it, starting to leave Mona, who is not moving, off in the distance. But then Gil changes his mind. He turns around, and the camera moves back again behind Mona. And then Mona turns away from Gil, so the camera again sees both of their faces. And at this point, we get a continuous shot with the camera following Gil, who is following Mona, who is trying to get away from him, as he tries to nail down why her arm hurts. He finally, against her apparent protests, pulls her jacket down so he can see her arm and he can see the big bruise 
on her arm. Here's the rest of that scene, and note how Mona plays Gil as deftly as Gil plays the piano. How did you get that bruise? I, I hit my arm against the table. Would you mind showing me how? Look, Mona, you don't have to tell me if you don't want to. I admit it's none of my business, but... Well, it might help you if you talk about it. Now, how did you bruise your arm? Was it your husband? Gil, that's not fair. I don't care, was it? Please, Gil, I don't want sympathy. It was your husband. What's the difference? It's been going on a long time. Why didn't you tell me? Because I'd give anything not to have told you now. It's about time you did. Darling, I love you, no, don't you? Gil, you mustn't say that, please. Sorry. Look, I had to tell you, even though I know I mean nothing to you. Oh, that's not true. That's not true at all. You don't know how much it's meant to me to have you work with me every day and, and take my mind off him. These last few months have been so awful. What do you mean? Tell me. Well, go on. Tell me. It isn't easy to tell. To try to talk about what it's like to live with a man who's... Physically cruel and insanely possessive. Tomorrow you see a lawyer. Oh, no, Gil, I can't do that. I've asked Ben for a divorce. It doesn't do any good. You can't go on like this. I won't let you. What am I supposed to do? You want the truth? I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid of what he'd do to me. Well, I'm not afraid of him. I'll go to his office right now. It's time I met Ben Cameron. No. Gil, please, stay out of it. I can't stay out of it. Not now. Gil, wait. Look. I'll do what you said. I promise. Please don't go over there now. Look, Mona, I know what I'm doing. I just want to talk to the man. Now, don't worry. So now, let's take a look at our two leads. I've spent the last two podcasts dealing with episodes not yet covered by Jack Seabrook at his blog at barebonesez.blogspot.com. And it's great to have Jack back. He not only has a lot of good information about this episode but he provides a link to an interview that Kara Williams gave in 2016, from which I've borrowed some clips. And speaking of Jack, he contacted me recently and let me know that the 1950s Nero Wolf program that I referenced in the podcast for episode 35, The Legacy, was not a series at all, but a one-shot unaired pilot. So my thanks to Jack for setting me straight on that. Let's begin with Robert Horton, who plays Gil Larkin. He was born Meade Howard Horton Jr. in Los Angeles. Wikipedia says he survived several surgeries in childhood, including one for a hernia and a treatment for an enlarged kidney. He went to the California Military Institute where he played football, and then after that tried to enlist in the Coast Guard, but was discharged because of his kidney. He studied drama at the University of Miami, then later changed to UCLA. And when he was 28 years old, he was signed to a contract with MGM. But it wasn't in films where Robert became a star. It was in television, where he played Flint McCullough on the series Wagon Train. I'm looking for Mr. McCullough. That's me. What can I do for you? I'm a trader, Mr. McCullough. This is a wagon train, not a trading post. That's funny. I was told it was. I don't know who told you that, but it's wrong information. It was a little boy. 
Where is he? Well, where is he? Is he all right? Oh, he's fine. We're taking him to California, that is, unless we can trade. Then I'll do my best to send him back here. You harm that boy and I'll follow you and kill you, believe me. None of that, McCullough. Our trading days are over. And while Robert is mostly forgotten today, he was a star. And as a result, was featured on shows like This Is Your Life. What are you doing? Bob, Bob how are, are you? Are you out of I'm your mind? <laughs> <laughs> I've been out here for a, about 10 minutes. Listen, we know that you and Marilyn are set to go out to dinner. Well, look, you're going out to dinner, but a little later on, a dinner in your honor... Because tonight, yeah. Robert Horton, star of Wagon Train, this is your life. <laughs> Many times, Ralph, I've tuned in on your show, but never have I been more surprised than I am tonight. Bob, I want to tell you, never was I more happy to see a man in my life. I've well, been out here. Is this the front door or not no, here, this bud? This is the side door. Oh. The front door is over here by the well, gentleman. Well, uh, help us. Well, I tell you what. And that's my dog, Jamie, and you could have been met by a dog bigger than we are. But that, that's what I was... Uh, somebody yelled just we went up, look out for the dog. You yeah. Know? Look, well, we're only a very short uh, way from Burbank Studios, so how about you're coming along with me, and uh, we'll take off for NBC and follow your own wagon train as it rolls through life. And as one of these celebrity guests on Password. Robert Horton, you're the rainmaker. That's right. Beautiful play. Thank you. Now it's a lovely musical on Broadway. Very successful, I'm very happy to say. And you're singing, and very well. Well, that's very nice of you. Thank you very much. Better tell them the name of the musical. The play was called The Rainmaker, but the musical's called... 110 in the Shade. And I understand you're going to make a record album. As a matter of fact, because of the show and the response to my singing, I've signed a contract with Columbia, and we have high hopes. In fact, Wikipedia says that Robert quit Wagon Train to pursue a career in musical theater. And he did put out that album, entitled The Very Thought of You. The Very Thought of You And I forget also starred for one season as Shenandoah in the TV western The Man Called Shenandoah. He appears in the schlock science fiction horror film The Green Slime. The Green Slime. Robert Horton. Luciana Paluzzi. Richard Jacobs. You make too many mistakes. You're not right for command. This is my command, and I'll manage it. Two men struggle for survival in the infected remains of a diseased universe. And he had a small role near the end of his career in the soap opera As the World Turns. They wouldn't let him out on bail? 
I went down there to bail him out, but he got snotty, so I left him there. Are you telling me that you left Kirk in that place? That's right, Diana. He'll have to find out exactly where his arrogance and hostility is going to take him. I don't understand you. How could you be that cold-hearted? Do you have any idea what Kirk must be going through? That's his problem. He's been a thorn in my side long enough. His last role on IMDb is from 1989, an episode of Murder, She Wrote. Robert was also an accomplished pilot, and according to an issue of Plane and Pilot magazine from 1967, his three greatest thrills were his first solo flight, a performance before Queen Elizabeth II, and being featured on Ralph Edwards' This Is Your Life. This is his first of seven appearances on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is Crack of Doom, episode nine of season two. And Robert Horton died in 2016 at the age of 91. Kara Williams was born Bernice Kamiat. You grew up in Brooklyn uh, before moving to Los Angeles. And once you were in Los Angeles, you began acting under the name Bernice K before choosing your stage name. Was there any motivation behind choosing the name Kara Williams? You know, yes, yes, there was. <laughs> Funny you should ask me that. Because every time my name was Bernice Kamiat, K-A-M-I-A-T. <clears throat> I, I see it, I'm so little horse. Anyway, any, every time I, had, I would give my name, they'd say, how do you spell it? And I was so bored having to spell it. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'll take an easy name. And I picked, everybody knows how to spell Williams. Right, sure. So I took the name of Williams, which I could, I, I, I regret to this, to this day. Why is that? Because W was way at the end of the alphabet. Right. And you're always called last. <laughs> Bernice's father, Benny Kamiat, was a journalist for the Brooklyn Eagle. And her mother worked as a manicurist next to the Brooklyn Albee Theater and she would leave Bernice with the theater owners to babysit. At the age of 16, Bernice was signed by 20th Century Fox, and it's during that time that she billed herself as Bernice Kay. IMDb says, throughout World War II, she was always reliable for adding a little pep and zing to her smallish roles, but nothing to propel her into the front ranks. Then in the 50s, she earned what IMDb calls notably feisty, tart-tongued roles, and then in 1958 received an Academy Award nomination for her role as a widowed mother in The Defiant Ones. I was shocked when I was nominated for an Academy Award with uh, Defiant Ones because I really walked through that movie. IMDb says the sitcom December Bride, starring Spring Byington, had deadpan quipster Harry Morgan stealing many scenes, griping about scatterbrained wife Gladys, who was never shown on camera. When Harry got his own spin-off, Pete and Gladys, Kara Williams got the role as Gladys. I like kitty cat snacks because... <laughs> I like kitty cat snacks because... because they're delicious, nutritious, and, uh... Vitamicious. How's that? Uh-uh. What's wrong with it? Well, what kind of a word is vitamicious? Well, it's a perfectly good word. It's used every day. What's it mean? Well, it means, uh, having vitamins. 
Just like nutritious means having, having newts. Besides, <laughs> you can't say I like kitty cat snacks because. Why not? You've got to say cats like kitty cat snacks because. Because cats do the eating and they either like it or they don't. Betty, you mind if I make a personal remark to my wife? Are you asking me to leave? If I play my cards right, I won't have to ask you. Here, now let me dry. Darling, Gladys, how about dinner? Dinner? Oh, my goodness, it's 7 o'clock. After her time on Pete and Gladys, she starred in her own show, The Kara Williams Show. Won't you come in? Oh, thanks. Uh, Would you like some coffee? No, I don't have time. Is Frank still asleep? No, he had to get to the office early. He had a meeting. Listen, uh, could you do me a life and death favor? Sure, what is it? Well, I lost my canary. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I didn't know you had a bird. No, I mean Chi-Chi Jurgensen, my female vocalist with the all-girl figure. <laughs> she is good, but she's got a cold, though. Mm. Oh, there's a lot of that going around. Listen, Carrie, this is really important to me. I got a chance to get a recording contract if I make a demonstration record in one hour, if I may be wrong. Mm. Is that that song I hear you rehearsing every night? Oh, you've heard it. Good. That'll make it real easy to do. Mm. <laughs> to do? Oh, Fletcher, you don't mean you want me to sing it for you? Yeah. Fletcher, I can't sing. Well, my walls have tender ears. I hear you singing in the shower all the time. That's in the shower. Well, I'll turn on the faucet and get you in the mood. IMDb says, molded at this time by the CBS powers that be as the next wacky redhead to follow the comedy heels of Lucille Ball, the plans quickly went askew following an unfavorable network power shuffle and the canceling of her sitcom after only one season. With her momentum completely gone, her career went into rapid decline. She has only a handful of appearances, following the cancellation of her show in 1965, and she retired in 1982 to become an interior designer. For those of us interested in the old anthology shows, she is in four episodes of Suspense, and the Clock episode, not the Lights Out episode, The Hypnotist. And there's a story behind that. And Charlton Heston came to New York while I was there acting, and everybody wanted him to Playhouse 90, every big show wanted to, to get him to come back because he had signed a contract in, in California to do movies, and he refi refused to do anything. So I was going to do a show. I had committed to do a show called Lights Out. The director was Sidney Lumet, and I had not really read the script. And I read the script, and it, I was horrified because it was a horrible script, and it was a stupid script where the hypnotize me and I go out and steal. <laughs> so 
I had basically had told me my leading man was going to be Barry Kroger. Mm -hmm. And I said, how do I get out of doing the script? So they called me up and they said, we can't get Barry Kroger. I said, well, I'm not doing, I'm not doing the script then. I, 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 I'm not, you promised me Barry Kroger, I'm not doing the script. Right. And they said, Carrie, please, you have to do it. I said, I don't, you don't have to do anything. I committed to this show because you were going to get me Barry Kroger, and you're not you haven't have don't have Barry Kroger, so I, I'm out. And he said, "Well, listen, who 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 would you want as Lady Man?" So I just thought to myself, "I'll say Charlton Heston because he'll never do this script." So I didn't realize that this young man that I was so friendly with had told Charlton Heston that I was a great actress. Okay. When they called Charlton Heston, he said, Carol Williams, of course I'll do this show. <laughs> so it backfired. I, Charlton Heston and I never spoke again. <laughs> because he played the guy that hypnotized me to go out and steal. <laughs> and here's one last revealing clip from that 2016 interview. But I was kind of lazy. And I remember when Ivan Khan saw me in a one-act one play in a little theater. He was a talent scout. He used to say to my mother, God, if she had less talent and more ambition, she'd be a big star. Mm. And that was my problem. I did not have ambition. and I didn't, I didn't push myself or if I was in line, I didn't go in front. And uh, he spoke the truth. I had very little ambition. Kara Williams was married to John Drew Barrymore, through the 1950s, but she is not Drew Barrymore's mother. Drew is the daughter of John Drew Barrymore and his wife following Kara Williams. Kara eventually married real estate entrepreneur Asher Dan, and they remain married until his death in 2018. This is her first of four episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Her next is Demortuous, episode three of season two. And at the time of this recording, Kara Williams is 96 years old. So we last left Gil leaving Mona's apartment to go to Ben Cameron's office. And we see him heading stage right towards Mona's front door. And then we get a crossfade as he's heading stage left through the door of Ben Cameron's agency. He enters just as Ben Cameron's secretary is covering up her typewriter for the night. Yes? I'm Gil Larkin, Mrs. Cameron's accompanist. He's expecting me. Mr. Cameron's on the phone right now. Would you wait a minute, please? Sure. I have an appointment, and I'm late already, so if you don't mind, I'll run along. Not at all. See that light on the phone? When that goes off, he's hung up, and you can go on in. Okay? Fine, thanks. Good night. Good night. So Gil has actually made an appointment with Ben. He's expecting me. He's not just planning to barge in and confront him. But then, on the other hand, he ends up going into the office before the light goes off on the phone, which is convenient, seeing as he gets his clue from the music coming over the telephone. On the other hand, if the person on the telephone is waiting to make sure that Ben has been shot and killed, that light will never go off. So it's a good thing for the plot, not only the murderer's plot, but the episode's plot that Gil ignores the light and goes right in. Before we join him, let's take a look at Ben Cameron's secretary. 
According to the closing credits, she is played by Eileen Harley, but she mostly went by her real name, Wallace Earl. IMDb says, according to her daughter, Wallace Earl tried out two stage names early in her career, Eileen Harley and Amanda Ames. Both Eileen and Amanda were names of close friends when she was young. Ames was the name she thought sounded best with Amanda. Later, she began using the surname Harley, which was a real family name on her mother's side. Sometimes she kept the family name even when she was using Amanda, becoming Amanda Harley. And sometimes she is credited as Wallace Earl Lavin because she was married to our director, Arnold Lavin. Now, Wallace did have her own career, but she also appeared in an awful lot of shows directed by her husband, including episodes of The Rifleman, Policewoman, The Rockford Files, Hill Street Blues, Planet of the Apes, Gunsmoke, and the 1957 film The Monster That Challenged the World. Her non-Arnold Lavin-directed appearances include episodes of The Donna Reed Show, Dr. Kildare, The Big Valley, Jerry Lewis's The Nutty Professor, and the Arnold Lavin-produced Elvis Presley film Clambake, playing a secretary again. Hello? Just a moment, sir. I have a call for you. Scott, is that you? Allie? How'd you find me? Well, I've only been trying every mobile operator south of the Mason-Dixon line. Your father's fit to be tied. Hold on a minute. I have Scott on the line. Hmm. Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. Give me that horn there. Here. This is her only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, and Wallace Earl died in 2012 at the age of 85. So now that we've looked at Wallace Earl Lavin, it seems like a good time to look at Arnold Lavin. Arnold began his show business career as a mailroom messenger at Warner Brothers. Jack Seabrook says he got his start making training films during a stint in the U.S. Army Air Force First Motion Picture Unit during World War II. And that unit included George Montgomery, Arthur Kennedy, Alan Ladd, William Holden, DeForest Kelly, and Ronald Reagan. Arnold called it the best film school in the world. After the war, he continued to work in Hollywood as a script supervisor, a dialogue director, and a press agent. Then in 1951, he formed a production company with Jules Levy and Arthur Gardner, both of whom he met in the first motion picture unit. On a shoestring budget, they produced a thriller entitled Without Warning, starring Adam Williams as a gardener who murdered women with his garden shears. It was Arnold's first directing credit, and the film did well enough to set him off on a directing career. But he also still served as producer, and he was the one who came up with the concept for the television series The Rifleman, passing it along to a young writer named Sam Peckinpah, who wrote the first episode. Arnold and his colleagues produced 124 episodes of The Rifleman. They also produced 112 episodes of The Big Valley and 97 episodes of The Detectives. His directing career was almost exclusively for television including episodes of Mannix, The Greatest American Hero, The A-Team, The Big Valley, Eight is Enough, The Six Million Dollar Man, Fantasy Island, Ironside, 
and chips. We will see him one more time, way down the line, as the director of The Return of Verge Likens, episode one of season three of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. And Arnold Lavin died in 2009 at the age of 87. Let's get back to Gill entering Ben Cameron's office while Ben is still on the phone. The camera follows him across the antechamber at a low angle. It moves inside to show him entering, then switches to Ben at a high angle, looking down on him as he sits at his desk talking on the phone. In their brief exchange, the camera switches back and forth, low angle on Gill, high angle on Ben. Then the camera moves behind Gill so that we see Gill's back and Ben sitting at his desk. As Gill approaches the desk, the camera follows as if it's somebody walking behind Gill. And it turns out there is someone walking behind Gill, but it's not the camera because when Gill stops, the camera keeps going right past him giving us a close-up shot of Ben at his desk, who looks behind Gill and past the camera. Here's that sequence. Well, first of all, I want a four-week guarantee in your name above the title. Wait a minute, somebody just came in. Yeah, something I can do for you? I'm Gil Larkin. I'd like to talk to you. Sure, make yourself comfortable. I'll be with you in just a minute. Now, how much did you say they offered you? That's perfectly ridiculous. The answer is no. I don't care what kind of success they promised you. Certainly I'll talk to them. They shouldn't have called you directly in the first place. Oh, Richie. Richie, don't. We get a quick shot of Richie hitting Gil over the head, knocking him out. That's the first part of this sound effect. The second part is that gunshot, and Ben recoils from its impact. Now, if you freeze the shot at just the right time, you can see Richie behind Gill. You can see what he looks like. But of course, they couldn't do that in 1956. So all the viewer back then got was a glimpse, then a shot of Gill on the ground, and Richie's legs as Richie bends down and apparently puts the gun into Gill's hand though that is out of the frame of the shot. A little bit of time passes, and the camera dissolves to a shot of Ben, his head on his desk, dead. The phone is still off the hook, right by his hand, and music is playing out of it. And the camera pans down from Ben's desk to Gil on the floor. It's a single shot as Gil gets up, sees the gun in his hand, goes over behind the desk and picks up the phone. The person on the other end of the line hangs up, and the camera, still in the single shot, moves in on Gill. Behind him, on the wall, looking down at him, are the masks for comedy and tragedy. Gill narrates his way through this scene. It couldn't have been more than 20 seconds before I came to. At first, I didn't believe what had happened. Then I looked at what was in my hand. Can you hear me? 
me and turned me into a patsy, a fall guy, a clay pigeon. Whoever had killed Ben Cameron had wanted to pin the blame on me. I was a decoy. What should I do? What could I do? Go to the police? Say I was in love with Cameron's wife and I wanted to ask him for her freedom? While I was there, someone came in and killed him. Would they believe me? Never in a million years they'd figured for the way it looked. They'd claim I came in, we, we argued, in a fit of anger, I shot him. Wait a minute. Someone on that phone had heard Cameron call out the murderer's name. Richie. Someone had heard the shot. Now, if I could find the person Cameron had been talking to, they might be able to help me, but... But how? Well, maybe Ben has left some sort of evidence that will help Gil out. And sure enough, there's a piece of paper under his dead hand. Gil gingerly moves Ben's hand and reads the paper. It says, nicely typed, Sasakawa from Japanese troop will call around 7. And below that it says, Dave Packard will call at 7. So now Gil has some possible leads. And instead of going to the police, he goes off on his own to try to prove his innocence in the grand tradition of other Hitchcock leading men like Robert Donat in The 39 Steps and Bob Cummings in Saboteur and later Cary Grant in North by Northwest, the classic Hitchcockian wrong man. Now, before we follow Gill on his journey to prove his innocence, a couple of questions. First of all, who is Richie, and why does Ben know him? Secondly, why does the person on the phone stay on the phone? We can come up with some ideas on our own, but I don't think either one of these questions is ever really answered. Let's look at the actor who played Ben Cameron. He is David Oreck McDiarmid, credited as David Oreck here. Jack Seabrook says that he was an actor from 1949 to 1956 on TV and film before becoming a TV director from 1956 to 1967. He directed three episodes of The Twilight Zone, Execution, A Thing About Machines, and Back There, as well as directing episodes of Bewitched, That Girl, Gilligan's Island, and It's About Time. He was married to actress Patricia Breslin, and they had a son, David Oreck McDiarmid Jr. But when they divorced, Pat Breslin later married Art Modell, the owner of the Cleveland Browns, the team that later became the Baltimore Ravens. And David Oreck McDiarmid Jr. became David Modell. David Modell, through the aegis of his stepfather, worked for the Baltimore Ravens. According to Wikipedia, he negotiated contracts and coordinated game day operations. He also helped to coordinate the fan vote to rename the team in 1996 when it moved from Cleveland and was involved in the selection of the team's new logo. And shortly after the Ravens' victory in Super Bowl 35, he was handed control of the team's primary day-to-day operations. But after Art Modell sold the team, he maintained a position as a consultant and, Wikipedia says, kept a low public profile. But unfortunately, David Modell died of lung cancer in 2017. Now, his father is thought of mainly as a director, 
but he actually has, according to IMDb, the same number of credits as an actor as he has as a director. Nothing in his acting credits particularly stands out, except for his last acting credit, Harold Bixby in The Spirit of St. Louis. Well, gentlemen, I think I'd better I thank you a lot for the time. Mr. Lundberg, have you got a name for this plane yet? A name? No, sir, not yet. How would this look, gentlemen? I mean, if we went through with it. The spirit of St. Louis. I like that fine. I mean, I'd like it if you went through with it. Yeah, that'd look good on her when we landed in Paris. Wouldn't look so good if you had to ditch her in the ocean. I can make it across, all right. What makes you so sure you can make it? Well, Mr. Bixby, when I was a kid and the smallest in my class, I made up my mind that I was going to be six feet, three inches tall. And I made it with half an inch to spare. This is his only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And David Oreck McDiarmid died in 1979 at the age of 65. Gil has read about Sasakawa and knows she's the greatest dancer in Japan. So he knows what theater at which she's performing. And he gets there by 8.20, enough time to possibly see her in her dressing room before she goes on stage, if he can get by the doorman. And look who the doorman is. It's Harry Tyler in his fifth of 11 appearances after Premonition, and so died Rio Bashinska, where he is also a theater doorman, Place of Shadows, and Portrait of Jocelyn. His next is coming right up, episode 39, Momentum. In this particular case, Harry is not much of a doorman. We get a nice shot of Harry on the left side of the screen talking on the phone, and Gil on the right side of the screen, the open door frame between them, showing us both of them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Look, lady, I'm just the doorman here. Well, wait a minute and I'll write it down. We didn't really need to hear that clip, but I wanted to give Harry his due. And as he turns to write down whatever he's writing down, the camera moves inside so we can see Gil slip in while Harry is looking down at what he's writing. He comes down the corridor quickly and then dodges behind a corner before Harry looks up again. Then one of the Japanese members of the cast or crew occupies Harry's attention with a question, which allows Gil to slip across the corridor again to the dressing room of Sasikawa. The camera follows him all the way. Gil goes to a door marked number four. I don't know how he knows that this is Sasikawa's dressing room, or maybe he's just trying to hide temporarily. But when he opens that door, he is confronted by a short figure in a grotesque mask, which causes him to recoil. And actually, it's a nice little shock moment for the audience as well. The figure removes her mask, revealing herself to be Sashikawa. She is played by Mary Jean Yamaji. And I have to say that I've pretty much found out nothing about her. This is her only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, because this is her only appearance anywhere, according to IMDb. I did find a photo of her from the Japanese-American digitization project of Cal State, labeled Portrait of Young Woman. The Cal State website says, In 1922, Kinzo Ninomiya opened the Ninomiya Photography Studio in Little Tokyo, Los Angeles. Due to Executive Order 9066 in 1942, 
That's the Japanese American Internment Act. The studio was forced to close, but was reopened by Kinzo and his son, Elwin Ichiro, in 1949. The studio operated in Little Tokyo until its final closing in 1986. The Ninomiya Studio Collection captures slices of Japanese-American life in Los Angeles from the 1950s through the 1980s. The collection contains formal portraiture and candid photography in black and white and color, as well as commercial photography for local businesses and reproductions of older photographs. Each negative scanned has been selected out of multiple negatives and prints from a set. The title of the negative scan reflects the purchaser's name, and in this case, the purchaser's name was Mary Jean Yamaji. Now, this could be a formal portrait of Mary Jean for her acting resume, but if so, it only helped to earn her one credit this episode, at least in Hollywood. Perhaps she had a career on the stage. This is all guesswork because I can't find anything about her life. So after Sashikawa removes her mask and identifies herself, a man steps in next to her. I'm Sashikawa. Won't you come in? Thank you. Who are you, sir? My name is Gil Larkin. I'd like to ask Miss Sashikawa a few questions. You are a reporter? No, but I think she can help me. I am her husband. We are at your service, Mr. Larkin. Thank you. Do you know a man named Ben Cameron? We both know him. He's my agent. A very kind man, Mr. Cameron. Thanks to him, I was hired from Japan to dance in this show. I consider him to be wonderful. I see. Did you call him at his office tonight around 7 o'clock? Did you call him? What are you people saying? And that's probably what most people in the audience are asking as well. But even those who speak Japanese may not get an explanation. I tried to get a translation using a website called Sonics. And to be fair, I did take the three separate clips of the Japanese being spoken here and put them all together before I sent the clip in to be translated. But this is what I got as an answer. I don't know if I read the book, but I wasn't there. I'm telling you the truth. I can't read. So did I. You don't have to die tomorrow. I told you, didn't I? If you don't read it, there's nothing to worry about. Talk to you. Now either Sonics got that completely wrong or they were just saying anything to each other because they figure most of the people in the audience wouldn't understand them anyway. And the whole point is just that, to throw confusion at the audience, to make them think that there is something sinister going on here when there isn't anything sinister going on at all. In the end, Sashikawa has to go on stage, but she gets rather testy with Gil, which also seems to imply that there's more here than meets the eye. Or maybe she's just sick of Gil's questions. I'm sorry, I must be on stage. Please, wait a minute. Did you call Cameron's office? No, now please leave me alone. Did you call him? Neither of us called Ben Cameron. We intended to, but we changed our mind and decided let it wait till the morning. If we cannot help you in your trouble, we are sorry. It seems a little odd to me that you would call Ben Cameron's office to tell them that you're going to call around 7 and then not call around 7. But that's also what Dave Packard does. 
Of course, Dave is a lot flightier. But before we get to Dave, let's look at Ido Mita, who played Sasakawa's husband. He was born in 1908 in Japan, and there's not much information on him, but there is his entry on Facebook showing some artwork that he did in 1942. And it says, Ido Mita, a Los Angeles artist and actor, sent Art and Estelle Ishigo at Hart Mountain, Wyoming, a watercolor of a cat playfully batting at an ornament hanging from a tree. Mito was an Issei, that's a Japanese immigrant to North America, from Fukushima. He was confined for three years at Hillcrest Sanitarium in Mount Crescenta, California, with 130 others of Japanese ancestry who had tuberculosis or other communicable diseases. The private facility was requisitioned by the government and operated by the WRA. That's the War Relocation Authority. An armed sentry guarded the patients. So Ido was confined through the Japanese-American Relocation Act, and his acting career in this country, according to IMDb, is confined to 10 credits, beginning with the film Destination Gobi in 1953 and ending with an episode of Hawaiian Eye in 1961. One of those 10 credits is on the Ann Southern Show. Well, good morning, Miss Iwamoto. On this morning, I bring to you greeting from my heart so true. <laughs> well, now that's a beautiful sentiment. Trifle corny even for a greeting card in my flower shop. <laughs> Mr. Iwamoto, I can tell by the twinkle in your eye, Mr. Debbie wants me to send flowers to someone. A real big deal. Doll named Carol Morrison. Carol Morrison. Now, that name alludes me. Let's see what the little black book says. Hmm? Here we are, Karen Mor Oh, here we are. Karen Morrison, tall, brunette, chic, very social register. Sound like chrysanthemum type. Yes, with long stems. And mix in some ferns. It's her birthday. Good. I have some mushy birthday cards, too? No, no, Mr. Debbie likes me to compose his greeting cards. His friends have been swoon over my romantic sonnet. With your sonnets and my flowers, you're both pretty romantic fellows. Good day, Ms. O'Connor. Good day. This is his only appearance on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And Ido Mita died in 1963 at the age of 54. Gil leaves the dressing room, and he actually bothers to take out a pen and cross Sashikawa off his list before he moves on to Dave Packard, who he tells us in his narration is the most famous disc jockey in New York. Now, Dave Packard is played by Jack Mullaney, whom I have defended from criticism over his previous two appearances in episode 30, Never Again, and episode 33, The Belfry. But unfortunately, I can't defend him here. Even granting that Dave Packard is supposed to be somewhat of a character, Jack's performance is way over the top here. Sorry, Jack. Maybe I'll like you better in your next and last appearance, A Little Sleep, episode 38 of season two. Anyway, the scene shifts to Dave Packard in his radio broadcast booth. He has a handkerchief tucked into his shirt so he can dab off the sweat, and he's using an LP as a fan. He has the other kinds of fans admiringly looking in at him through the glass of the booth, hoping to get his autograph. And the camera moves over to a door where Gil enters 
led in by a station page. Now let's Dave pack it in there. Here's the program will be finished in a minute. Excuse me. That page in his first IMDb credit is Frank Gorshin. Now Frank was born in Pittsburgh in 1933. His parents were of Slovenian ancestry and he spoke mostly Slovene before going to school. When he was 15, he took a part-time job as an usher at the Sheridan Square Theater. And while there, he memorized mannerisms of stars he saw on the screen, and he created an impressionist act. While he was still in high school, he won a prize in a Pittsburgh talent contest, which was a one-week engagement at Jackie Heller's New York nightclub, Carousel. His parents insisted that he take it, even though his brother had been hit and killed by a car just two nights before. In 1957, Frank himself fell asleep at the wheel of his car after driving from Pittsburgh to Los Angeles for 39 hours without sleep. He was on his way to a screen test for a role in the film Run Silent, Run Deep. The crash left him with a fractured skull, and he was in a coma for four days. The role, by the way, went to Don Rickles. Frank was an impressionist all through his career. He appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show 12 different times, including the night that featured the debuts of Davy Jones and The Beatles. But he also did his share of acting. He had guest appearances on Have Gun, Will Travel, The Untouchables, Naked City, Combat, A Man Called Shenandoah, Ironside, Hawaii Five-O, Wonder Woman, and more. He appeared in 68 episodes of the soap opera The Edge of Night, and he has a memorable role in the film 12 Monkeys. But he's mainly known for two roles. First, as the bigoted alien Commissioner Beale in the Star Trek episode Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. As always, Lokai has managed to gain allies. Now, wait a minute, Commissioner. Even if they don't recognize themselves as being such. Yes, he will evade, delay, and escape again, and in the process, put thousands of innocent beings at each other's throats, getting them to kill and maim for a cause which they have no stake in, but which he will force them to violently espouse by twisting their minds with his lies, his loathsome accusations, and his foul threats. I can assure you, Commissioner, that uh, our minds will not be twisted, not by loci, nor by you. It is obvious to the most simple-minded that Loki is of an inferior breed. The obvious visual evidence, Commissioner, is that he is of the same breed as yourself. Are you blind, Commander Spock? <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. You're black on one side and white on the other. I am black on the right side. fail to see the significant difference. Loki is white on the right side. All of his people are white on the right side. And second, of course, playing the Riddler in the Batman TV series. Out riddled. I thought you might be Batman. That's why I brought witnesses with cameras. Oh, what is it that no man wants to have, yet no man wants to lose? A lawsuit. Correct, boy wonder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I've waited for this. It makes my whole life worthwhile. <laughs> After you've chewed over this one for a while, look for two more. Adios, amigos. See you in court. <laughs> In his later years, he played George Burns in the one-man Broadway show Say Goodnight, Gracie, which I saw, and I thought he was terrific. It was after a performance of that show in Memphis that he boarded a plane to Los Angeles and experienced severe breathing troubles on the flight. He was rushed to the hospital upon landing, where he died in 2005 at the age of 72 from lung cancer, complications of emphysema, and pneumonia. Frank had been a heavy smoker, sometimes smoking as many as five packs of cigarettes in a day. Adam West once said that Frank could reduce a cigarette to ash with one draw. This is Frank's only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but he does return eight years later in The Second Verdict, episode 30 of season two of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. So, after Dave Packard finishes playing his generic jazz song, he leaves the booth. He signs autographs for his fans, but then Gil accosts him. They talk as Dave ties his tie looking in the mirror, and much of this scene is played in the mirror. But when we move away from the mirror, things get very real, as Gil grabs Dave by the lapels, demanding to know whether he called Ben Cameron. And then, though it's hard to tell what he's humming, Dave apparently hums the tune Gil heard on the telephone as he is leaving, and Gil grabs him again. Do you know Ben Cameron? Ben Cameron, sure, he's a doll, a real doll. Been my agent for years. He's a real sweetheart. Great. Did you call him tonight around 7 o'clock? <laughs> Did you? Hey, I don't like your tone of voice. I don't like anything about you. Why should I tell you anything? <laughs> because Ben Cameron was killed tonight. Did you say killed? You mean, uh, you mean dead, the funk could put my agent? That's right. You mean my pal, my buddy, was killed? <laughs> hey, you're crazy, man, real crazy. <laughs> hey, well, I gotta get to my chair. Look, did you hey. call him tonight? Do you know a man named Richie? <laughs> Richie? Hey, hey, I don't dig you, man. <laughs> Look, Mr. Pa Packer, I'm sorry, but somebody's trying to frame me. Now, you left a message you were gonna call his office around 7 o'clock. Now, all I want to know is, did you call him? No, I got tied up, but I'm gonna call him in the morning. I'm gonna call him in the morning. Wait a minute. Hey, you're breaking my That's the tune I heard on the phone. Now, you must have called Cameron. You know what you did. You just made me out like I'm a liar. Well, you're the end of living. But that's the tune I heard on the phone. But it's an old record I wouldn't play. Well, that means square, real square. Hey, hey, you're, you're real crazy. You know what I think happened to you? You, you flipped. <laughs> Let's listen to that music again. And here's Dave Packard's version. Well, Gil is a better man than I am, if he can recognize that as the same tune. Having struck out on his two possible witnesses, Gil heads back to Mona's apartment. We get a nice little shot here where he's smoking a cigarette. He brings the cigarette down in his hand as he presses the doorbell with that same hand. The camera follows it down to the doorbell. Then he lifts the cigarette back up to his mouth again. The camera follows it back up to his face. But Mona is not the one who answers the door. The door is answered 
by Lieutenant Brandt of Homicide. This leads us to commercial. And when we come back, we get a repeat of the last few seconds of the previous scene, although not exactly the same. This was something that was done sometimes in programs in the 50s and 60s, either to remind us of our place or to mark a climactic moment. It was never meant to be seen back-to-back as it is on the DVD, but when you watch it like that, it's like you entered a slightly alternate dimension. Who are you? I'm Lieutenant Brandt, Homicide. Who are you? I'm Lieutenant Brandt. We're from Homicide. Do you recognize Lieutenant Brandt's voice? It's Philip Coolidge in his third of six Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour appearances. His last ones were The Perfect Murder, episode 24, and Who Done It, episode 26. His next is Demortuous, episode 3 of season 2, along with Kara Williams. After this double introduction, Brandt steps aside. We're still on the outside looking in through the door, but now we can see that Mona is standing back there. There's also a couple of other homicide cops who get no lines and no credit, and I don't know who they are. As Gil enters the apartment, the camera switches to behind Mona as Gil walks towards her. The last time we saw this shot, Gil walked toward her to find out what was wrong. Now he's walking toward her to declare he did nothing wrong. Mona, I didn't do it. Believe me, I didn't. Of course you didn't. How did you find out? Somebody called headquarters? Lieutenant Cameron was on the phone when he was killed. He was shot by someone standing directly behind me. Now, whoever Cameron was talking to would have heard him call out the murderer's name. Richie. Whoever was on that phone must have called you. They said nothing about a Richie. Which certainly seems to indicate that whoever was on the phone was in on it with Richie. Gill explains where he's been for the last few hours. Lieutenant Brandt points out, Well, there are fingerprints all over the gun. It'll be easy to find out whose they are. Lieutenant, they're mine. I was slugged when I came to. There was a gun in my hand. Now, I wasn't thinking about fingerprints. You'll find them all over the office. Does that sound like a guilty man, Lieutenant? Would a murderer leave his fingerprints on a gun? Lieutenant, if Gil were guilty, he would never have come back here to see me. Sounds reasonable. Nevertheless, the lieutenant takes Gil down to headquarters, where he tells his story. Or at least to where Gil's narration tells us that he told his story. It must have been two in the morning when I finished dictating my statement. I told them everything I could remember. I swore to them it was the truth. Then Lieutenant Brian handed me a cigarette. Lighted it for me, and as I took my first puff, he said, You know, like him, that's as involved a statement as I've ever heard. You don't think you could tell it the same way twice, do you? I certainly can. I'd like to hear you try. All right. And back we go to Mona's place. Gil rings the bell. Mona answers. Her face is lit with soft lighting to make her look very appealing and romantic. She lets Gil into her apartment, makes a drink for him, and one for herself. She doesn't drop this one. Gil wanders over to the record player and looks at the record on the turntable. He doesn't seem to recognize the title, but then later, after they toast each other, he plays the record, and it's the same music that he heard over the telephone. Well, I suppose that the same person who left a record playing 
after a murder so that Gil could hear it, would not think about taking the record off the turntable and stashing it somewhere so that Gil couldn't find it. Kara Williams' expressions are great in this scene. As Gil starts to berate her, she first looks shocked, outraged, surprised. But then as he continues, she gets this sort of exasperated look on her face, then a contemptuous look on her face, until she turns away from Gil and invites someone else into the room. Gil, at this hour? Sorry, I wasn't thinking. Funny, that's the second time I've heard that record tonight. It's quite a coincidence, don't you agree? I suppose so, I don't know. It's an old tune, you don't hear it very often. What's wrong, Gil? Finding that record is no coincidence. You were playing it tonight when you called Ben. I called Ben? Oh, no, Gil. Gil, do you know what you just said to me? What's the matter with you? Darling, you're talking to me. I love you. We love each other. I... Oh, tell me about loving me. You never loved me. Oh, you planned this very well. I was pretty dumb, wasn't I? But it's easy to fool someone who's in love with you. And what a fool I was, believing your story about Ben's beating you, about his physical cruelty. I didn't know Ben, is that why you picked on me? And did you laugh when I went up to his office like a stupid errand boy because I was concerned about you? I wanted you to be happy. And what did you want from me? A murder charge. And for what, you must have had a reason. What were you after, your freedom? Ben's money? What were you framing me for? Richie. It's a great moment, a chilling moment. It may be also an expected moment, but it's still a chilling moment. Richie comes out of the bedroom, and what do you know, he's got yet another gun. Now we find out just how heartless Mona is. What do you want me to do with him, Angel? What can we do with him? See, a man that committed a murder would have a guilty conscience. And a guilty conscience could lead to suicide. Couldn't it? I won't stop him. Come on, Pigeon. And so at last, it's time to look at the actor playing Richie, Harry Lewis. He was born in Hollywood, and he had a fine career playing mostly supporting roles, appearing in films in the 40s, and then switching mostly to television in the 50s. His best-known role is probably as the Gunsel Toots in Key Largo. <laughs> What's so funny, Toots? Two cons in the cell, see? And one con is trying to sell the other one a fountain pen. And he says this pen is guaranteed for life. What's the matter? Don't you get it? A con. Guaranteed for life. In 1950, Harry and his eventual wife, Marilyn Friedman, invested $3,500 to open the Hamburger Hamlet restaurant on the Sunset Strip. The restaurant grew into a chain of 24 locations. Harry and his wife took Hamburger Hamlet public in 1969 and sold the company in 1987 for $29.2 million. They said that the reason for the name was because they were hoping that the restaurant would be where actors would eat 
and that it was every actor's dream to play Hamlet. Harry's last role on IMDb was as a justice of the peace in the television series Fame in 1985. And Harry Lewis died in 2013 at the age of 93. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. So Richie is leading Gil away at gunpoint. Gil asks if he can pick up his coat. And just as he does, Lieutenant Brandt and the other cops burst into the room. Gil uses his coat to knock the gun out of Richie's hand. Mona tries to play the innocent, but realizes it won't work. Oh, thank heavens, Lieutenant. I don't know what's going on. That This man rushed in with a gun, and, and he... Gently, please, I bruise easily. Don't I, Gil? Well, Miss Larkin, looks like you figured it just right, Lieutenant. Afraid I did. Can I have a second? Sure. These are my arrangements. Is it all right if I take them? Go ahead. We started with Gil playing the piano for Mona. Now the camera moves in on his hands as he closes the piano. His relationship with Mona is over, as is this episode. The teleplay here was written by Bernard C. Schoenfeld. Jack Seabrook tells us that Bernard was born in Brooklyn and majored in English literature at Harvard. He then attended the Yale School of Drama. He was tutored by Conrad Aiken at Harvard, and before he went to Yale, he befriended James Agee. He sold two shows that were produced on Broadway, but neither had a long run. In 1936, he moved to Washington, D.C., and began working for the federal government as a radio writer for the Office of Education. In 1938, he became chief scriptwriter for the radio section of the Department of the Interior. And in 1940, he became chief of the radio section of the Office of Emergency Management. By 1942, Schoenfeld was an editor at the Radio Bureau of the Office of War Information. In 1943, he moved to Hollywood and began a career as a screenwriter, adapting Phantom Lady for producer Joan Harrison and co-writing The Dark Corner. He received an Oscar nomination for co-writing the screenplay for Caged, and he co-wrote Macau. But by 1952, the year of Macau, he began to focus his efforts more on writing for television than for film. And he testified as a friendly witness before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Bernard wrote mostly for television for the rest of his career, which ended in 1975. He spent his final years living in Mexico. Now, among his credits are the screenplay for the film The Space Children and the film The Magic Sword. And he wrote teleplays for Peter Gunn, Combat, T.H.E. Cat, Mannix, and one episode of The Twilight Zone, the little regarded from Agnes with Love. This is his first of 16 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is Alibi Me. Episode 7 of Season 2. 
and Bernard C. Schoenfeld died in 1990 at the age of 82. Now, the closing credits say that this was based on a story by Richard George Pettisini. But as we've learned in some previous episodes, sometimes based on a story means based on a radio play. In this case, a suspense episode entitled A Murder of Necessity. Richard George Pettisini is a bit of a mystery. This is his only episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And as Jack Seabrook tells us, he was born in 1923, but I can't find any evidence as to whether he's still living or not. Also, IMDb says he did some acting in the 80s and 90s. They credit him in the TV series Winners, the 80s version of Mission Impossible, Time Tracks, the TV movie Mercy Mission, The Rescue of Flight 771, and the series Adrenaline Junkies. And there is an article by him at otrcat.com, which stands for Old Time Radio Catalog, entitled Remembering Writing for Jack Benny. And in it, he says, I had the good fortune to be a writer for radio during its golden years. Among the drama series I worked on was Suspense, for which I wrote 14 episodes, including Blood on the Trumpet for William Holden and The Great Train Robbery for Fred McMurray. Usually when people find out that I was a writer and that I have worked with some well-known celebrities, one of the first questions they ask is, what's Jimmy Stewart really like? What's Frank Sinatra really like? Well, let me tell you what the great comedian Jack Benny was really like, because while I have worked with a lot of well-known entertainers, Jack Benny is the one who impressed me most. The suspense script I wrote for him was Murder in G-Flat, which aired on April 5th, 1951. On the day of the broadcast, Benny and cast and sound crew all got together in Studio A at Columbia Square in Hollywood for a roundtable read-through. Then the director had the cast read it over the microphones. He then dismissed the cast for half an hour while he worked with the sound men. At this point, Jack Benny walked over to where I was sitting. He bent over and said, look, am I reading this part the way you wrote it? I nearly fell off my chair. Here was this great comedian and giant in radio asking me, a fledgling writer, still wet behind the ears, if he was giving the role the right interpretation. Somehow I managed to mumble that I thought it was fine. Then he continued, if there's something I'm doing that's not right, speak up. And with that, he walked away, going over his lines. To me, that was one of the reasons why Jack Benny was and would always remain one of the giants. Now, Jack Benny is not in A Murder of Necessity. Robert Young is. There was also a TV version on Suspense starring John Forsyth, which, according to Jack Seabrook, aired just three months after the radio version. But that version of the story, unfortunately, is lost. So in the radio version, Robert Young plays Mark, though he uses the name Paul Drake, like the detective in the Perry Mason series, for much of the episode. As the radio show begins, Mark goes to confront slimy detective Herbie Sachs, who has been blackmailing him. Herbie, I'm through. You bled me for the last nickel. What are you talking about? I made a mistake a long time ago. I went hunting and I killed a man. It was an accident. But instead of turning myself in and getting off on a charge of manslaughter, I listened to the advice of a man named Herbie Sachs. Go home. Nobody saw you shoot him, you said. Nobody did, except you, Herbie. I'll be silent, said Herbie. Oh, look, Mark. I've had to pay for your silence. Haven't I, Herbie? Through the nose. 
Who do you think you are? Coming here like this? Why, for two cents? For two cents, you'd sell your mother, your grandmother, and your wife, Gretchen. A nice girl who doesn't deserve you. I'm warning you, Mark. You're through warning people, Herbie. I wonder how many others will breathe easier when once they learn you're no longer exercising the big stick. Uh, uh, what are you going to do? This. So unlike Gill in Decoy, Mark really is the murderer. And it's only after he commits the deed that he realizes... Wait. Wait, Kirby was talking to somebody when I knocked on the door. Nobody here. Who was he talking to? Must have been talking to somebody on the telephone. He didn't hang it up. As in the Hitchcock episode, he picks up the phone, but all he hears is music. He sees three names on Herbie's phone pad for the day, and he goes and he checks out all three people. Not to find someone who would declare his innocence, but to silence someone who may be a witness. Deciding that the third one is the person that was on the phone, he plans to murder that person later. But he goes home first and gets a call from Gretchen, Herbie's wife, who tells him that she is the one who is on the phone, and she wants to see him. So he goes over with his gun, planning what he feels is a murder of necessity. Hello, Mark. Come in. (laughs) Mark! Oh. Oh. Oh, Mark. You fool. You fool. I'm sorry, Gretchen. I... I hated him. I hated him. What what are you saying? I... I couldn't stand him. Everything he was, I... I hated. He... He wouldn't let me go. No. I... I don't believe you. Last night, I I called him on the telephone. Called him to tell him to come home. Because... No, no. When he got home, Mark, I was going to kill him. Uh, uh. Gretchen. Operator, get me police headquarters. I just committed a murder that wasn't necessary at all. So, in a murder of necessity, we have double retribution. Gretchen pays with her life for even planning to murder her husband, and Mark turns himself in after realizing that all of his violence was unnecessary. Of course, that doesn't take into account that he has made at least a couple of blackmail victims very happy. And it sort of sidesteps the fact that the reason his murder of Herbie is unnecessary is because Gretchen would have done the job for him. Still, I think there's a lesson here about not using violence or taking the law into your own hands or even jumping to conclusions that we don't see in our Hitchcock episode. So what do we see in Decoy? More on that in a minute. But first, how about a little woman-to-woman talk? When the studio closed down... Um, 
I found a story, a long novel in a magazine, a novelette, you know. J'ai découvert une, un long conte dans un... Oui. And I found oui. that the uh, story... Et j'ai trouvé que l'histoire... ...was owned by Universal, American company. ...était la propriétaire d'Universal, une compagnie américaine. But I didn't mind. I sat. Ça m'était égal. Alors. I sat down and wrote a script based on this story. Je me suis assis et j'ai écrit un script basé sur cette histoire. As an exercise. Comme euh, simplement pour m'exerciser. In the meanwhile, there was another company coming in. And they hadn't got a story. Ils n'avaient pas d'histoire eux, de sujet. And. Um, I was going to be assistant director with this company. Et j'allais être assistant metteur en scène avec cette compagnie-là. And my friend, who ami, was the art director for Paramount, qui était le directeur d'art pour Paramount, euh, allait être le directeur d'art pour film. And uh, I helped them talk to these, this company, which was Balkan. Et la compagnie était Balkan, alors je leur ai parlé. Balkan Friedman. Balkan Friedman. Saville. Saville. And they bought a story called Woman to Woman. Ils ont acheté une histoire qui s'appelait Woman to Woman. Saville, c'est Victor Saville, non? Yes, Victor Saville. Ils ont acheté une histoire qui s'appelait Woman to Woman, femme à femme. So they said, uh, well, we have to get a, a script written. Oui, mais euh, ont-ils dit, il nous faut un script maintenant? So I said, uh, I would like to do that. Alors, j'aimerais bien le faire. They said, you? Vous? What have you done? I said, I will show you something. J'ai dit, je vais vous montrer quelque chose. Alors, je leur ai montré ce que j'avais fait. So I showed them the script I'd written. Que j'avais écrit. They were very impressed. Ils ont été très impressionnés. So I got the job. Et j'ai obtenu la position. I was uh, 23. J'avais 23 ans. Qu'est-ce que c'était, euh, woman, woman to woman, comme... Euh... What was woman to woman? As I say, I was 23 at the time. Comme je vous disais, j'avais 23 ans à ce moment-là. And I'd never been out with a girl in my life. Et j'étais jamais de ma vie sortie avec une fille encore. <laughs> I'd never had a drink in my life. J'ai jamais bu un seul verre. This was a story which was a successful stage play in London. C'était une histoire qui avait été une pièce à succès à Londres. C'est ça, oui. About a, um, an army officer à propos d'un officier d'armée durant la Guerre mondiale leave in Paris, en permission à Paris has an affair with a dancing girl, il a une liaison avec une danseuse and uh, goes back to the front et il retourne au front and is shell-shocked. Et il, est, and il a un choc de chocs. Et il perd sa mémoire. Goes back to England, a woman. Il retourne en Angleterre et il épouse une femme de société, la haute société. And then the turns up with child. Et ensuite apparaît la danseuse avec un enfant. And the conflict et alors le conflit. Et la fin de l'histoire, c'est que la danseuse meurt. Oui. Vous étiez assistant metteur en scène sur ce film aussi. And you were assistant at the same time you acted as assistant director on that picture. More, more. Encore plus. Oui. My friend, the art director, said he couldn't mon come ami, on the picture. Mon ami, so le art directeur a dit qu'il ne pouvait pas travailler sur le film. So I said, I will do the art. Director. Alors j'ai dit, moi je ferai aussi la direction de. 
Le metteur en scène a indiqué là, c'est Graham Cutts. Yes, Graham Cutts. But I did the art direction. Alors j'ai donc fait la direction. I wrote the script, did the art direction, and helped in the production. Et j'ai aidé à la production. My wife, ma femme, was the editor. Était l'éditeur. And in those days, script girl and editor was one person. Le script girl et l'éditeur et le monteur étaient la même personne. Because today, script girl keeps. Too many books, you know. She's an accountant. Yes. So you just got married then at that period then? No, not yet. Oh no, not yet. Oh, you hadn't gone out with the girl. Ah bon? Alors non, je comprends. Il y avait un conflit parce qu'il dit qu'il n'était jamais sorti avec une fille. Je lui demande alors vous êtes marié à ce moment-là? Il dit non, j'ai rencontré ma femme à ce moment-là. So, Sir Alfred says that he met his future wife, Alma Revel, on that picture, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he hadn't seen her before. In Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, Patrick McGilligan says, with all his accumulating responsibility, he was obliged to hire a staff, and Alma Revel was rather astonished to receive a telephone call. Up to this time, he had barely acknowledged her existence. Now he announced he was hiring for a new picture. Would Alma be available as editor? Patrick goes on to say, The romantic Englishman Clive Brook played the amnesiac, but Louis Selznick insisted on an American leading lady. Hollywood stars were box office insurance around the world. Victor Saville went to Hollywood to recruit Betty Compson, a stunning but down-to-earth blonde who had made the transition from vaudeville and comedy to serious dramatic parts. A star of her magnitude needed to be convinced she was not making a mistake with a leap into the dark of a British studio, wrote Saville in his memoir. I not only had to sell the screenplay, but all the technical aids as well. Did the studio use a Bell and Howell camera? Had the cameraman a good track record? How experienced was the makeup man? And so on and so forth, right down to the efficiency of the wardrobe mistress. Compson arrived in London in May 1923 and was lavishly feted at a press party at the Savoy. Hitchcock met the American actress there, and they struck up a fast friendship. He was grateful that such a big star would take more than passing note of a young non-entity, and he never lost touch with the actress. Seventeen years later, when she needed work to qualify for guild pension and benefits, he paid Compson back with one of her last roles, the minor part of Gertie, in his comedy Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Since Hollywood stars could be brought over to England only at considerable expense, it was standard practice for them to appear in two pictures back-to-back. As soon as filming on their first production was finished, Balkan, Saville, Friedman hastily assembled their next picture. That film would become The White Shadow. But not so fast. We'll get to The White Shadow next time. In the meantime, here's a bit of what Alain Kurzankoff and Charles Barr say about Woman to Woman in Hitchcock, Lost and Found, the Forgotten Films. The actual director of the film was Graham Cutts, whom Truffaut and Hitchcock name drop in that clip we heard. And Kurzonkoff and Barr write, the film was a spectacular success, both critically and commercially, consolidating Cutts's stature as a major figure. The tribute paid to it by the cosmopolitan Irishman Rex Ingram, director of the recent Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, was quoted by Kinney Weekly on November 8, 1923. I have just seen a British film, Woman to Woman, one of the best and most sincere films I ever saw in my life. 
they have never produced in America a better film than Woman to Woman. A reviewer in the same issue stated that no praise is too high for the artistic direction and the eminently human way in which Graham Cutts has unfolded the story. He went on to note that the senorous name is not mentioned, but he certainly deserves a fair share of praise in the success of the picture. Though the name of A.J. Hitchcock had been given in some of the advanced publicity, it evidently did not make it onto the credit titles. Reviews also made much of the lavish sets, including a French nightclub based on Hitchcock's research in Paris, but again, no credit was given. Hitchcock does receive credit in some reviews and other publications, including a 1924 American collection called Representative Photoplays Analyzed. Kurzankopf and Barr say the name of the screenwriter, Alfred J. Hitchcock, is one of four given at the start of the section on Woman to Woman, alongside those of Betty Compson, Graham Cutts, and Michael Morton, Morton being the writer of the play on which the film is based. A three-page synopsis follows, including a different ending made for America. Dolores, the French woman, rallies and lives and is finally free to marry David, the soldier. The writer notes, This was in conformity with the popular demand for a happy ending. Whether or not the picture has gained in audience appeal by sacrificing dramatic strength and plausibility for a happy ending is open to conjecture. Another point which may interest the student was this. In many states, the censors refused to permit the picture to be shown unless David and Dolores were depicted as having been married before he left for the trenches. It is doubtful which was the lesser evil, to show Dolores as the mother of an illegitimate child or David as a bigamist. Woman to Woman, like many of the other films we've talked about, is lost. But whereby in many of the other films, Hitchcock was just title designer. Here he was scriptwriter, art director, and assistant director, which makes this loss a little bit harder to stomach. So, what do we see in Decoy? Let's broaden that question out beyond just what the possible themes may be. First of all, we see a change from the radio show in which the main character is no longer a murderer, but rather a patsy. Why does Bernard C. Schoenfeld decide to do this? It's certainly not dictated by the producers, because we've seen other murderers as main characters in the program, some of whom even get away with it, at least until Hitchcock's retribution outro. Now, Bernard certainly has a right to make this change, but once he does make this change, he brings up a whole lot of questions of exactly what we are seeing in Decoy. Let's try to unravel this. Apparently, Mona is romantically involved with Richie. But who is Richie? A gangster? A hitman? A guy with two guns who is willing to kill for his lover? It's never made clear. Whoever Richie is, Ben actually knows him well enough to call out his name as he's being shot. So Richie is more than a secret lover. Is he a mutual friend? Is he in the entertainment business? Could be. But remember, Ben doesn't know Gil, even though Gil is Mona's accompanist. Maybe Richie is one of Ben's clients. We never find out. All that being said, what exactly is going on here? Well, Mona and Richie plan to kill Ben, and they decide to make Gil the patsy, the decoy, because Mona is well aware that Gil is in love with her. So they concoct this whole rubbing your arm, big bruise. Where does that bruise come from, by the way? 
don't go see my husband scheme that they figure is guaranteed to make Gil go see her husband. Though there are a couple of moments there where it looks like he may not. And then what? Is Richie waiting around the corner at Ben's office, hoping that Gil will show up, giving up the plan for the day if Gil doesn't show up? All we know is that, fortunately for Mona and Richie, Gil shows up just when the secretary is leaving, which allows Richie to sneak in behind him. Now, when Ben calls out Richie's name, the identity of the murderer is no longer a mystery, even though we don't know who Richie is at this point. No, the mystery here is who is on the other end of the phone. It seems to me that Mona is a pretty obvious suspect. It's Bernard's first job as teleplay writer to dissuade us of this possibility. And so, the side of the conversation that we hear is very businesslike. Doesn't sound like a husband and wife talking at all. Here it is again. Well, first of all, I want a four-week guarantee in your name above the title. Wait a minute, somebody just came in. Yeah, something I can do for you? I'm Gil Larkin. I'd like to talk to you. Sure, make yourself comfortable. I'll be with you in just a minute. How much did you say they offered you? That's perfectly ridiculous. The answer is no. I don't care what kind of success they promised you. Certainly I'll talk to them. They shouldn't have called you directly in the first place. Of course, it makes perfect sense once we remember that Mona is also one of Ben's clients. But from what Ben says here, doesn't it sound like Mona called him? Why does she bother to do that when she knows that Richie is about to kill Ben? Does she want to witness it? Make sure Ben is dead? But it's not Richie who picks up the phone and reports, the job is done, he's dead. She waits until Gil comes to and picks up the phone. And even if this is part of the plan, why does she have music on? Particularly if she's the one that initiated the call. Why play any music at all? Unfortunately, the practical answer to all of that has nothing to do with the story itself. It has to do with the script writing. We need Mona to stay on the phone and to play music so that Gil will pick up the phone, hear that music, and identify it later in her apartment. That's what all this boils down to. No more, no less. The same thing can be said for our red herrings. Why do Sashikawa and her husband speak heatedly with each other in Japanese, locking Gil out of the conversation when it's all entirely innocent? Why does Dave Packard hum a song which even he says is too old for him to play on his radio show? Neither of these things actually make sense. It's just paint-by-number script writing, designed to keep us off balance, designed to make us wonder who on the phone witnessed the murder, rather than who on the phone is in on the murder, which only leads to Mona. So the script may be a bit clunky, but those serving the script are not. The actors here are all terrific particularly Kara Williams, who is so convincing early on as someone who doesn't want to get Gil involved, and then in defending him, and then in making the transition from appearing that she doesn't care for him, except as a colleague, to actually declaring her love for him, to morphing into this heartless woman who brings Richie in again to kill Gil. That moment, that one name, Richie, being the most chilling thing in the episode. And then, as I said at the beginning, we have an active director distracting us from the flaws in the story. Arnold Lavin's fluid camera work, his single shots, his switching of perspective, his high angles, his low angles, all serve to keep our eyes occupied. And in keeping our eyes occupied, 
keeps our brain from thinking about things too much. But here's what it boils down to. In the radio show, we have a simple, streamlined story about a violent, desperate man who is so proactive, he kills where he doesn't need to kill and learns too late a very harsh lesson. In the TV episode, we have an unlikely, artificially constructed story about a man who, in spite of his initiative in looking up Sashikawa and Dave Packard, is so reactive, so restrained, that he is considered by Mona and Richie to be the perfect clay pigeon, the arranger who is so easily arranged. In the radio show, Mark's pursuit of a telephone call leads in the end to his own telephone call to the authorities, marking his downfall. In the TV episode, we begin with Gil playing the piano for Mona and end with his hands closing that piano as he takes his arrangements with him. Mark, in A Murder of Necessity, has learned a lot. What has Gil learned in Decoy? Don't fall in love with a woman who will turn you into a patsy? I can't discern too much more than that. Now here's Hitch to send us on our way. And once again, it looks like I have the European version on my DVD, which is missing the commercial break and the post-commercial finish. So I'll play what I've got and read the rest to fill it all in. About that uh, scene I mentioned, we ran over time and had to cut it at the last moment. I'm sure you don't mind. It had nothing to do with the story, but uh, it was a lot of fun making it. Tonight's commercial comes in three installments. Here, before I return, is the third and concluding chapter. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, The Spirit of St. Louis, Batman Season 1, Star Trek The Original Series Season 3, and Key Largo are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The suspense episode A Murder of Necessity, the trailer for The Green Slime, the clip from As the World Turns, the This Is Your Life episode, the episode of Wagon Train, the Password episode, Robert Horton singing The Very Thought of You, the Pete and Gladys episode, the Kara Williams Show episode, the 2016 Kara Williams interview, Clambake, the episode from the Ann Southern Show, and the Hitchcock Truffaut Conversations are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Finally, I'd like to call your attention to the podcast Behind the Marquee in which Nick Alderink of Ann Arbor's Michigan Theater and State Theater talks films. The Michigan Theater is doing a festival of Hitchcock's movies, and Nick very graciously asked me on his show to talk Hitchcock. You can find Behind the Marquee wherever you get your podcasts and on the library's website at aadl.org slash behindthemarquee. So check it out. Next time, episode 38. The Creeper, starring Constance Ford, Steve Brody, and Harry Towns. Now back to Hitch 
or rather me as Hitch. That was my error. I see there will be three more installments of the commercial next week. I hope you can wait that long to see how it comes out. Good night.